Um, tonight, I want to take just a moment to look at a portrait of the gospel, a portrait of the gospel. Our anchor passage this evening is Romans chapter 6, verse 22. It says, But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So they say that a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, So how many words would you say that an unfinished picture is worth? I want to consider just a moment a picture that we're probably all familiar with. How many of you use cash when you buy things these days? Not too many. I don't that often. But if you have a, a fresh, crisp $1 bill in your pocket... There's a picture on the front of that bill. And whose picture is that? George Washington. All right. So how many of you knew that that portrait is actually an unfinished portrait? It's an unfinished portrait. In 1795, Gilbert Stewart painted a portrait of President George Washington. The painting was so well received that Martha Washington, his wife wanted Stuart to paint another portrait just for her. She persuaded her husband to sit for another portrait. However, old George, he was not too good at sitting. He did not like to sit for portraits. So Stuart, being the shrewd businessman that he was, decided to intentionally leave that portrait unfinished so he could refer to it for future commissions. This unfinished portrait was eventually cropped and used as the rendering on the United States $1 bill. This unfinished portrait became one of the most recognized in American history. Did you know that the portrait that we have of the gospel is unfinished? That is to say, not that the gospel is unfinished, don't misunderstand me. That is to say that as beautiful as that portrait is, we can't see the whole picture. And with the picture that we do have, we often overlook some of the important details. And so today I want to dig in to this verse and the surrounding verses, uh, because this is a passage that I believe paints one of the most complete portraits of the gospel that we have in Scripture. And as a bonus... We're going to uh, tie all of this in to Brother Rich's series about Habakkuk, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Most of us are familiar with the term, the gospel, right? It's the good news. We know what that word means, specifically the good news, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But many of us only know the gospel from that limited portion of the portrait. Now, granted, that particular portion is exceptionally awesome. Right, the God of the universe, of all creation, of all universes, sent his son to pay the price for our sins. That in itself is unfathomably amazing. But there is more to the portrait that we have been given. So we're going to work our way through the parts of this portrait, the parts that God has revealed to us in Scripture, and hopefully leave tonight with a greater understanding and a greater appreciation of just how extraordinary our God is and the portrait that he has painted us into. So, ready to go? Here we go. We're going to start with framing the gospel. So, any good portrait has a frame, all right? So we're going to start by framing the gospel, and just, I've asked several teenagers 
Uh, even recently, I've asked several uh, adults, uh, those that have even brought, been brought up in church, uh, been around church for a long time, the simple question, why did Jesus have to die? You might be surprised at how few people can clearly give an answer to that question. And this answer to this question is what's going to frame our gospel portrait or give us some context to the gospel story. So the framing starts at the beginning of this, our anchor passage, Romans chapter 6, verse 22. It starts with these two simple words, but now. So anytime you see this phrase in scripture, it means that you need to back up. You need to read a little little bit more. And uh, for the sake of time, we can't go back into too much detail. The book of Romans, there's a lot there. But I'll kind of give you the elevator pitch, if you will. You know, Paul wrote the letter of Romans to the saints in Rome. And there's this overarching point that he wants to give them. And it's the just shall live by faith. Romans 1 16 to 17 is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. For it is, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And as it is written, the just shall live by faith. These two verses could be described as the thesis statement for his argument to the saints at Rome. When he says, as it is written... The just shall live by faith. He is referencing a passage that is well known to his audience. It is a direct quote from Habakkuk 2, verse 4. There's that tie-in that I was talking about. So if Brother Rich asks you, you can tell them that I have kept the continuity of his series while he was gone. So this argument was prompted by a conflict between Gentile Christians and Jewish Jewish Christians. Uh, Paul wrote to clarify how the Jewish and Christian faith had connected. So you had the Jews that were, they were new to this whole Jesus thing, and so they kind of wanted to bring in some of the old, uh, the old things from the law and that kind of that thing. The Gentile Christians, they sometimes got a little wild with some of the stuff they were believing as well. So Paul was trying to get everybody on the same page and help them to understand how things connected. So to make that connection clear, he had to go back to the beginning, and he had to talk about that thing that nobody wanted to talk about, and that was sin, and the fact that everyone, everyone had a problem with it. So he spends the first three chapters of Romans talking about it in graphic detail. He talks about how the Jews and the Gentiles are equally guilty, and that they could keep all the laws they wanted to, but they were never going to be enough To save them, he wraps up chapter 3 by quoting some more familiar passages from the Psalms, reminding them that not one of them was righteous. And if it wasn't clear enough by that point, he comes right out and says it in verse 23, a passage we're familiar with, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if we're looking for that clear answer to the question from before, why did Jesus have to die? Here's the beginning of that answer. We are all sinners. We have all failed to live up to God's standards because of our failure, more specifically the rebellion in the garden when humanity began. We have been found guilty and sentenced to death. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, 
and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Upon our realization that we are sinners, we are put on death row. No bail, no chance of getting out. There's nothing we can do to pay that debt that we owe. But then in steps Jesus. Bet you didn't know all that was in that but now phrase, right? So that is the frame of the context or the context of the gospel story. The why. Sinners with no hope. But now. So let's start painting this picture with the execution of the gospel, the execution of the gospel. If we look at Romans chapter 26, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 22, our anchor passage again, it says, But now, having been freed from sin. Now remember, we're on death row, but in steps Jesus. Now Paul uses some different language, some different examples to uh, describe to his audience here in Romans about the bondage of sin. He talks in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, it says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Now, Paul makes a stark comparison here, and he continues to reinforce the fact that the only way to be freed from the bondage of sin, which ultimately leads to death, is through Jesus. Now, just to clarify, this obedience leading to righteousness phrase here is not talking about obedience to the law or our good works. We do not have the time to kind of tackle all that that is covered in Romans, as I stated before. But chapter 7 talks all about the insufficiency of the law or the obedience to the law in regard to our salvation. We could never do enough. We could never obey enough of the law in order to save ourselves. The only law that can save us, the only obedience that is enough to release us from the bondage of sin and the resulting death is that of Jesus Christ. And that's what we read here in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. In Christ alone, we are made free. In John 8, Jesus takes a, makes a similar claim to some Jewish believers that he was speaking to. So John chapter 8, verse 32, it says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Another passage we've heard many times before. Now, his audience at the time didn't quite understand what he was talking about. They thought he was talking about physical bondage. Like, what do you mean? We've never been in bondage, which was ironic because Israel had been in bondage many times before that point. But they said, what do you mean? We are not in bondage. A little further down in John chapter 14, he clarifies that statement. It says, verse 6, says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus was referring to himself as the only way to freedom. So again, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus have to die? So we are sinners. We can't save ourselves. He was the only sufficient sacrifice. He came to this earth. He was fully God, 
Fully man, not half God, half man. Fully God, fully man. If you're keeping track, that's 200%. All right? He accomplished what we could never accomplish. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Galatians 1, 3 through 5 says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now to me, this is the most beautiful part of this portrait so far, at least the part that we can see. The real beauty here is in realizing the extent of God's mercy and grace. And to just give you a simple definition of the two, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Right? Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Okay? In Christ, we get both. God showed us unbelievable mercy by sending his son to take our place. We did nothing to deserve it. In fact, we just did just the opposite. We did everything to not deserve it. Think back to the death row analogy. We've been pronounced guilty since it's to death, and we are left in this cell awaiting our sentence to be carried out. But Jesus steps in. He doesn't just give us the keys to the door and then walk away. He steps into that cell and takes our place, taking on our guilt, accepting our punishment, he sets us free. And here's the really cool part. When it comes time for the sentence to be carried out, Jesus faced the death head on and conquered it on our behalf because he loved us that much. How's that for amazing mercy? Then we see the grace part come into the picture. Because he conquered death, He gave us the opportunity to partake in something that we did not deserve, and that's his resurrection and thus eternal life. If we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 21, it says, For since by man, lowercase man, referring to Adam, came death, by man, uppercase man, referring to Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. Romans 6, 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. So let's sum it up and finish answering this question. Why did Jesus have to die? Because we are sinful beings without the ability to meet God's standards. We are left with a sin debt that cannot be paid. Because of our inability to pay this debt, we must face the wages of sin, which is death, through Christ's only acceptable sacrifice on the cross, To pay our sins, we have access to his mercy and forgiveness. Through Christ's conquering of death, by raising up on the third day, we are extended grace. Something good that we did not deserve. That something good is actually something great. It's eternal life with our creator. And Paul sums that all up in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's freedom. Having been made free. 
Is the picture starting to come into focus a little bit better? You know, sometimes we think, though, that the portrait stops here. Like, salvation is our goal while we're here on this earth. And we do want to see people saved. We do want to see the lost come to Christ. But salvation is not our goal. Jesus didn't just save us and sign his name at the bottom of the canvas and kind of hang up his brushes for the day. All right, while the portrait of the gospel is unfinished, that is not where Jesus stopped. If you look at John 10, 10, it says, the thief does not come to steal, to, except to steal. This is Jesus talking. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus told us that he came to give us life, but not just life. He didn't stop there. He came to give us life more abundantly. And I believe this abundance comes from our participation in the gospel story, by sharing that story with others, by sharing the love of Christ to those around us. This exhibition of the gospel begins to paint the rest of the portrait that we have available while we're here on earth. So go back to our anchor passage, our anchor text, Romans 6.22. It says, but now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves to God, you have your fruit to holiness, your fruit to to holiness. Now, sometimes this is the part of the portrait that we maybe kind of ignore or at least maybe downplay, when in all actuality, this is the face of the gospel. This is what others see. This is what points others to Christ. This is the billboard in front of the art gallery beckoning all the patrons to come in and view this masterpiece. It's not the masterpiece itself, but it points to the masterpiece. It's good marketing. It's good advertising. The primary difference, though, compared to what we know of marketing and advertising is we're not trying to uh, exaggerate the value of this inferior product. As our advertising does, the value of this product cannot be exaggerated. In fact, all of our efforts to do it justice miserably fail. If we look at Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves, present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So herein lies this this paradox, our necessary reasonable, like the least that we can do, response to the gospel is everything we have. And everything we have falls incredibly short. But the gospel makes our sacrifices, our worships, our offerings acceptable because they're not rooted in our abilities. They're rooted in the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is is, God's intent, excuse me, and always has been his intent for us to walk in newness, as Paul describes in Romans 6, 4. It was never God's intent for us to just accept the gift of salvation and call it a day. The writer of Hebrews actually calls those saints there out for that exact 
same thing. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, it says, for though, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. By this time you ought to be teachers. So several years ago, uh, Brother Larry Campbell, some of you may know him, he's a pastor in, in Sherwood, just down the road from us here. I uh, he preached a sermon at church camp, and uh, this illustration that he used has stuck with me ever since. You know, he asked what qualified someone as a master of their trade. You know, all tradesmen have to go to kind of the same basic school, have the same basic education, depending on what they're doing. And on that level, they're essentially the same. But what distinguishes, say, a master plumber from an apprentice? experience, right? And what exactly is experience? I know that may be an odd question. We think it's a dumb question, but stick with me for a moment. Uh, I'll make this connection. What is experience? It's actually doing, right? An experiment is like a real-life application of an idea. It's kind of the same root word there. Consider this scenario. I have a, a kitchen faucet uh, that's leaking. My sink is leaking. Right? So I call the plumber, and uh, I'm, I'm not that guy who can fix that kind of stuff typically. So I'm going to call the plumber. Uh, in this particular case, it's in the winter. All these pipes are bursting. All the other plumbers are gone. So uh, I reach the only one left there. He's the master plumber. He's like the head of it all. He's over the whole operation. He says, uh, well, you know, I'm the only one left, so I'm going to head on over, see if I can help you out. Master plumber with 30 plus years of experience shows up in my house. He takes a look at the leaky faucet and he says, hmm, not sure if I can fix that. Uh, I've really only seen a couple of leaky faucets in my time. Uh, what do you think you should do about it? You know, I know I've been in the plumbing business for 30 plus years, but you probably need to, you know, go talk to someone who studies this all the time. Kind of like a jaw-dropping moment, right? Although I've been doing this all these years, you probably need to go talk to the pastor. I know I said pastor there, but track with me for a moment. I'll use myself as an example. I'm 42 years old. I was saved when I was 10 years old. On paper, I have 30-plus years of being a Christian. Why is it not a jaw-dropping moment if I can't answer a simple question, why did Jesus have to die? Now, if that's a question you couldn't answer before today, I'm not trying to come down on you. I just want you to understand that God did not call us out of darkness just to hang out in the shadows. He did not open the doors of this prison cell on death row just for us to climb back in and lay down on that dirty cot with that one bar of soap and that nasty, shiny toilet, okay? That's not what God intended for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16, says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, 
You also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. If we were to bear, if we are to bear fruit to holiness, as our passage says, we need to get to work. Fruit does not grow itself. We have to cultivate it. How do I do that? Glad you asked. Colossians chapter 3, starting with verse 12, it says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against, a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, do to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The Greek word for dwell richly or dwell in you richly here means to inhabit copiously or abundantly. The word of God should take up residence in our hearts, so much so that it overflows into every part of our life. So much so that we don't have to consciously say, you know what, I'm going to share the gospel with somebody today. It just comes, becomes such an integral part of our lives that we really can't help it. That's dwelling richly. But the only way we can do that is to intentionally spend time in the Word, spend time in prayer, and allow the Holy Spirit to work through us and work in us. Our relationship with Christ does not begin and end with salvation no more than a master plumber begins and ends with a plumbing license. After accepting Christ as our Savior, we are expected to grow in our faith and our relationship with Him. This should be a natural response to our redemption. The only reason it's not is because we've made a choice not to pursue holiness to hide our light under a basket, to be a Christian in word only, but not in deed. So let me ask you this, what kind of picture does that paint of the gospel? Is it a gospel that's just barely good enough to save us from burning? Or are we painting a picture of the gospel that's rich in mercy, love, grace, beckoning others to become a part of it? You see how much detail this holiness adds to the portrait of the gospel. It's the glory of Christ on display. It fills in all the parts of the portrait that we can see while we're still here on earth. That leads us to the unfinished part of the portrait, the culmination of the gospel. We go back to our Anchor passage here, Romans 6.22, it says, But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. You know, we're used to this term 
of being saved. We throw that term around a lot. There's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes I think that we kind of take that for granted as to what that means, and sometimes I think we overlook the timeline of what's involved in that statement. Well, you know, what are we being saved from? Our sins, yes, but more specifically, the consequences of our sin. You know, in both of his letters to the church at Corinth, Paul speaks of being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 2 Corinthians 2.15, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Paul recognized that the race was still being run. Our finish line is in eternity, not here on earth. Our prize is waiting there for us. So this part of the gospel portrait, this eternity part, is practically unknown to us. We know a little bit. We're going to dig into that just a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 1 Verse 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an incorruptible, undefiled inheritance that does not fade away, kept in heaven forever. Verse Corinthians 15, 50 through 52 says, Now this I say, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in the moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We know we have an everlasting inheritance that will never fade, it will never rust or be corrupted. But when you sit down and think of that, can we really grasp that? Now I'm going to read this next passage, and I know it's long, but bear with me. Listen to the details. I'm going to do my best to read through some of the words. Uh, Try to envision this in your mind. Um, if you need to close your eyes or whatever works for you, that's fine. Uh, you read along however you need to do it, but I, really, I want you to really think about what this passage says. It's out of Revelations in verse, it's chapter 21. We're going to start with verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall 
144 cubits according to the measure of a man, that is of an angel. The construction of its wall was jasper. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, pronouncing that correctly, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of all illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor to it. Its gates shall not be shut all day by day. There shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be by no means enter in it anything that defiles or causes abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what do you see? If you've never looked up these stones, uh, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, I had to look up some of them just to try to pronounce them, even though I still butchered them. Um, Brother Tobin could probably tell you a lot more about it than, than I could. He may even have some of these stones that it refers to. Um, but in, in my time of researching this and looking up, these amazing. These stones are amazing. And to imagine them as large as it describes here, it just paints such a more uh, vivid picture of what my eternal home is going to look like. But even with that, yes, the Bible talks about eternal life. It talks about heaven. It even goes so far as to describe this great city that we are going to live in. And, but however vivid of imagination you have, or however vivid of an imagination that I have, I do not think it would even come close to bringing it justice. And even if I could adequately visualize its physical presence, what about this part? Revelation 21 verse 4 says, God shall wipe away all tears from your eyes. There shall be no more death, neither shall there be no more sorrow. No crying, no pain, the former things are passed away. If we can imagine what it's going to look like, how in the world can we imagine what it's going to be like? We cannot imagine that. I mean, really wrap our minds around what that is. There's no tears they're all wiped away by our creator. No more sickness, no more anxiety, uh, depression, broken relationships, broken homes, whatever you may be dealing with here, cancer. There's none of that. 
Any of those things, these sin-stained things from this dying world, none of that is there. Only God, his glory, his love, his light, and all that goes along with that. The stuff that we don't even have the capacity to imagine for all of eternity. What a picture. For those that know Christ, it won't always be this unfinished portrait that we have in our mind. One day that portrait of the gospel and its glory will be a reality. Our reality and it's all in Christ. Now we saw earlier, we're going to wrap up, we saw earlier that one of the most well-known portraits in American history is unfinished. I would say that in America, in this world, we need to make the unfinished portrait of the gospel the most well-known portrait. We can use our life to paint this picture, paint it so big and so bright that whoever comes close will want to come see what all of this fuss is about. What do you have that I don't have? Use the brushes that God has given you to paint this beautiful picture of Christ. This beautiful picture of Christ that you can see until one day you get to see that finished masterpiece in eternity. If you're not a part of this portrait... It's not because God didn't want you to be a part of it, because he badly, badly does. So much so that he sent his son to die for you in particular. The Bible tells us, John 15, 13, that no greater love, that greater love hath no man, and that he laid down his life for a friend. God wants to be your friend. He wants to be your father. He has an incorruptible inheritance waiting on you, you need only to put your faith and trust in his son to claim it. Then one day, that portrait will be complete for you as well. Let's pray.